sermon will not be as short as Emily's announcement, so uh, everyone settle in, <laughs> get comfy. No, just kidding. Uh, before we dive into this, though, I do want to celebrate something. Uh, last Sunday, we talked about baptism, and we got to share in six baptisms right here at the East Campus. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we have had 12 baptisms from within Sherwood Oaks here and at our Bedford campus, and uh, I, I loved it at the 11 o'clock service. Uh, there were two ladies, independent of each other, that came forward, said they wanted to get baptized, and both of them they were like, we don't even want to change. And so they got in in their church clothes and, and baptized them, and they went home wet, and it was glorious. It was fantastic. I loved it. Ah, I loved it. So there is a scene in Matthew's gospel where he briefly kind of summarizes uh, Jesus' ministry. And it's in chapter 9, and he says that uh, Jesus went from town to town, village to village, place to place, teaching and preaching. He was sharing about the kingdom of God, that there can be peace between God and us, uh, sharing about God's love, sharing about that love that we can share with one another, about forgiveness and about freedom from sin. And while he made his way through these different places, Matthew says, that there were large crowds of people that surrounded him. Everywhere he went, people just came from out of the woodwork to come and see Jesus. And he would spend time healing them. I imagine as he sat with them, he listened to their story. He looked and he saw the pain in their eyes as he walked through their towns, I imagine Jesus probably saw all of the ways that they were faithful to God and probably even some of the ways that maybe they weren't faithful to him. And Matthew says that when Jesus looks at the crowds of people gathering around him from all kinds of different backgrounds with all sorts of different hurts and hangups and habits, all of these things that maybe divided them Jesus didn't look upon them with anger or with judgment or even with apathy. Instead, Matthew 9, verse 36 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion. Say that word with me, compassion. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion on the crowd of people because they were hurting. And, and notice, Jesus did not cause any of their pain, but it did not stop him from stepping into that and doing something about it. He walked in their shoes, tried to understand their experiences. He stepped into their struggles. It's, it's one of the things that I appreciate most about the incarnation, that God took on flesh and became one of us not just to save us, but to also understand us and what we go through, to feel it with us 
And in those moments, oftentimes Jesus would bring healing and new life and it would all flow from his compassion for others. And my prayer this week as I have studied and and prayed fervently over our text and our topic for today is that we would choose the attitude and the action of Jesus always, but especially today, that we would choose to have compassion for people whose experiences may not be like ours. Today we're looking at God's solution on racism. And because I believe that God deeply desires racial unity more than any of us do, I also believe that God's adversary and ours wants nothing more than to do what he has always done to get us in this very mess that we're in. Satan wants us to to draw sides, to, to get defensive, to put up walls, he wants us to paint with a broad brush or, or he wants us to, to, to listen. I think this is one of his favorite tools. He wants us to listen to respond instead of listening to understand. But we're not gonna let that happen today. Racial unity is God's idea and he promises that if we ask him for help, he will be faithful to answer. And so that's exactly what we're gonna do right now. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for the beauty of your creation and the diversity that we see in it. Goodness, Lord, you are a creative God. And we see it in the world around us, in plants and vegetation and the animals. We see it inside of each one another. And God, there's beauty in it. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have weaponized that, when we have allowed our diversity to cause division. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we will be on the front line of reconciliation, not just because it is at your heart, but because our culture is crying out for it. And we know, Lord, that the only answer is the gospel. And so teach us today and give us hearts that are open to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text today is Acts chapter 17. If you have a a Bible or Bible app that you like to use, uh, go ahead and and turn there with me, Acts chapter 17. Uh, This is a a fascinating passage. I've actually taught on this section that we're looking at today many times, and and I've never actually taught it from from this angle. Scripture is one of those beautiful things. It's like a a diamond you hold up to the light, and as you turn it, you see different colors, and and that's kind of what it's like when we enter into God's word. Like, we, we can see it from all of these different angles and all of these different lights, and all of it is God trying to speak the same message to us in maybe different ways, and, 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 and I've never seen our topic today in, in our text until we spent some time studying it in preparation for today, and now it makes a whole lot of sense. In Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we find the Apostle Paul in Athens, Greece. He he kind of encountered some, some danger in Berea, and, and so some people ushered him off to Athens, and so Paul is there waiting on his travel companions to, to catch up and, and join him. And, and while he's waiting, Paul just kind of walks around and takes in the city. Even in his time, uh, Athens was a place that was filled with all kinds of history and, and culture. Athens was an epicenter in the ancient world. And so Paul just kind of took some time to walk around and take in the sights and, and take in the, the culture. And, and as he did, this is what we find in verse 16. It says that while he walked around waiting for them, Paul was greatly distressed 
to see that the city was full of idols. Like as he walked around, he realized, man, there are statues to gods everywhere. He walked through the streets and he, and he watched as people would bow down and worship these idols made of wood and, and, and metal and gold. And, and, and they would make sacrifices to these idols. There was a saying during that time that in Athens, it is easier to find a god than a man. <laughs> And I think that Paul was distressed not because he was shocked by what he saw and, and he couldn't believe that these people were worshiping all of these idols. Idol worship wasn't new to Paul and Athens certainly had a reputation that he would have been very well aware of. And so I don't think that there's any pearl clutching going on here by Paul going, oh, I can't believe that these people are worshiping these false idols. I think that Paul is distressed because he saw so many people turning to idols and these gods looking for comfort, looking for hope, looking for peace, knowing that these inanimate objects will never be able to provide the very thing that they desire the most. He's looking at the crowds of people who are hurting and lost and looking for solutions to their pain in places where they will never be able to find it. And instead of feeling anger or judgment or even indifference towards the Athenians, Paul had the attitude of Jesus and was moved to compassion. And so as he walked, he started telling anyone who would listen about Jesus and about the resurrection, about the one true God. And some people listened and some people just kind of wrote him off. I, I love what Luke says in, in verse 18. It says that some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? And some of you are like, man, I found my verse for the morning. What is this babbler trying to say? Some wrote him off. But there were others who were curious not because they heard about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and they wanted to, to believe, and they wanted to follow him. Not, not because of that, but because this was a new idea, and there was nothing the Athenians loved more than discussing and debating and listening to new ideas. In fact, there's a little parenthetical note that, that Luke gives us in verse 21. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the new ideas. And so they invite Paul to this meeting of the minds in the Areopagus, this place where people would gather to listen and discuss and, and to debate these things. And, and I think that this is where some cultural insight helps bridge the gap between our text and our topic for today. You see, the Athenians had this deeply rooted belief, this pride, almost this, this arrogance about them that they were superior in every way. The Athenians believed that they originated from the soil of their homeland, that they just kind of sprung up from the soil, that they didn't migrate from, from anywhere else. And, and so they were not like other People. They believed in what we would call today that they were genetically superior, that they were the purest form of the human race. Athenians believed that they were intellectually superior. I mean, after all, some of the greatest thinkers of all time came from Athens. 
They even believed that their dialect of the Greek language was the purest and most prestigious form. They believed that they were morally superior with a rich history of philosophers and poets that they could point to. And of course, the Athenians also believed that they were spiritually superior because of all the gods that they worshipped and all the, the statues that they had placed up around their city. And so this is the culture that Paul steps into when he is invited to speak at the Areopagus. This is his audience, people who thought that they were genetically and intellectually and morally and spiritually superior to everyone else. It's not a real teachable audience, right? (laughs) But Paul's up for the challenge. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way, You are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. You see, years earlier, there was a plague that swept through Athens, and they they prayed, and they prayed, and they made sacrifices to all of their, their gods, but it didn't go away, and so they thought to themselves, maybe, maybe we missed one. And so they built this altar to a god that they didn't know, hoping that he or she would see them and and, and do something about it, and that just kind of hung around. It became this catch-all idol just to make sure that they had all of their bases covered. And Paul points to that altar of an unknown God and says, let me make him known to you today. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Paul says, so this God that you don't know, he is the one who made the world and everything in it. He is the one true God that gives us life and breath and wisdom and knowledge. He is the one who formed us. We did not form him. And he is the one who made all of the nations. Again, I think that Paul is coming to the Athenians from a place of compassion And he's challenging their deeply held beliefs and their superiority by pointing to the God who created everyone equally. In fact, in verse 6, our core verse for 26, our core verse for the week, when Paul says, from one man God made all the nations, the, the sentence structure in the original language could actually mean that from one blood, God made all the nations. From one Blood, God made all the nations. And so Paul is preaching what scripture teaches. And he's preaching what only genetic scientists have only recently discovered. 
that humanity shares a genome that is 99.5% identical. In other words, the genetic information that makes all of us up is 99.5% the same inside of every single one of us, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of nationality or anything else. And so by design, we have more in common and are more connected than we are different and divided. Not only that, but this God who formed us out of one blood made us in his image with his character, his nature, his value, his worth in us. Each one of us has the image of God firmly pressed into us and God created us to honor the priceless value of that image in ourselves and in each other. And yet oftentimes, we allow the amount of melanin in our skin and the social construct of race to define and divide us when we are all just different shades of the same color. And so even though we're all creative expressions of the same design, we haven't all had the same experiences. Instead of honoring our differences In light of our overwhelming similarities, we separate and divide based upon those differences. A couple of years ago, in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, a diverse group from within our church came together to help move us towards racial reconciliation in a biblical, gospel-centered way. And I, and I think that the formation of that group was seen by some as, as, a, as, a, as commentary on our church, that we had a racism problem in, in our church. And that, that wasn't the heart of it at, at all. The idea behind the formation of this group is that God cares about racial unity, and it was a conversation that our culture was having. And so as a church, we wanted to be ready to have a gospel-centered faith response to an issue that God cares about, culture cares about, and we care about. And so since then, we've held uh, three different workshops. We've offered several different Bible studies. Uh, The group has found some great resources for our life groups to study if they wanted to, and even recommended some books. If you wanna learn more about it, you can go to socc.org slash unity. And this fall, we're gonna be doing a Bible study called The Third Option, Hope, for a racially divided nation. You can find more about it on the Unity page or out in the lobby today. And I read through the book a while back and there's some really just good, solid biblical stuff in there. But what I appreciate most, what I appreciate most is his honest discussion about the biases that we all have. And listen, compassion, right? That's our word for the day. So hear me when I say having biases does not make someone racist. Like I'm not labeling anybody today. All of us have biases. It's what you do with those biases that matter most. 
I think that there's something in our makeup that naturally creates these categories of us and them. And it's not about race. It's, it's, it's about gender and age and politics and our favorite cable news station. It's about our stage of life. We have these categories of us and them. And those who are like us become our in-group in any way that we define ourselves. And we kind of draw boundaries around that. That becomes our in-group. And those who are not in your in-group are a part of your out-group. It doesn't mean that you push them out. It doesn't mean that you keep them out. It just means that we have different experiences. They're people not like me, and we're not like them. I've had kidney stones uh, three different times in my life. And uh, if you've had kidney stones, um, you are in my (laughs) in-group. It's hard to explain to someone who has never had kidney stones what they feel like and the just sheer pain that, that you experience when, when those little suckers are passing through around your kidney and all the twists and bends and turns. And, um, and uh, I've, I've heard that the closest pain to kidney stones is, is childbirth. And when Amber was about six months pregnant with our daughter, Nora, um, she developed kidney stones. And while we were in the hospital room, I jokingly said to her that she'd be able to answer that question definitively. And I don't think that she found it as funny as I did uh, in that moment. (laughs) But here's the thing, Amber and I are both in the kidney stones in-group. And if you have had them, then you are a part of that in-group. If you haven't, then you are in the out-group. We know the pain. But Amber is in the kidney stone while pregnant in-group. And I'm not a part of that group. (laughs) I am absolutely the out-group of that. And so there are some parts about our experiences that we share, but there's other parts I have no idea what she went through. And being in an out group just means that we don't have the same experiences or history or backgrounds. And because they're not in our in group and we're not in theirs, it means that we have fewer opportunities for shared experiences that create compassion and understanding and all the reasons why Jesus came to live and walk amongst us. The things that they've experienced or the burdens that we carry, we don't know that about each other. We don't know each other's strengths even, that we offer. And what oftentimes happens is that we develop biases based on our in-groups. We give preference to the people who are in our in-group. We give them more trust. We have more patience. We're quicker to give them the benefit of the doubt. But because we don't have the same shared experiences of our out-group, we tend to be less trusting, less patient, even less interested in them. And because we have less exposure to people in our out group and they have less exposure to us, we oftentimes form very generalized opinions about each other, opinions usually informed by stereotypes or media or others in our in group. We can easily view members of our out group as just being generally similar to each other and members of our in group as being more unique and nuanced and Oftentimes that just fuels the stereotypes and our biases and our overgeneralizations. And this has very real world implications. 
It's why during the heart of COVID, there was an increase in racially motivated attacks on people from Asian descent. It's why in the wake of the George Floyd murder, there was an increase in violence against police. When we lump people and cultures and races and professions together, it's easy to make stereotypes and people start to believe that because one bad cop went too far, then all cops are bad. And that's simply just not true. Because one person of color commits a crime, then no person of color can be trusted. And that is simply not true. It is a lie straight from hell. And it is a tool that Satan uses to only further divide us. And this hit just a little bit closer to home a few weeks ago following the Uvalde school shooting. Every Tuesday morning down in the the chapel, the end of the main hallway, we gather together as a staff and we have a little time of devotion and we celebrate the things that God's doing in our church and our ministries and in your lives and we pray for each other and we share things to pray about. And at the end of Devos that week, Sergio Lima, our Iglesia Hispana pastor, spoke up and asked us to pray for him and for our IH family. He said that anytime there is a crime committed by someone of Hispanic descent, people in our own church family experience more pain and alienation right here, even in Bloomington. In our fallen, sinful world, we all have biases of some kind. It does not mean that we are racist. It's just something that we need to be aware of and do something about. My my family has a propensity towards diabetes. That doesn't mean that I am diabetic. It just means that it's something I need to pay attention to. And so what do we do? I think Miles McPherson gives us some really good wisdom in the book that I mentioned earlier. He says that instead of just separating it into two options, us or them, let's choose the third option, which is honor. Honor one another. Honor gives value to people regardless of who they are, what they look like, where they've been, what they've done. Honoring people means treating them like valuable, beloved people that they are. Honor means elevating the 99.5% that we have in common and then celebrating all of the ways that a creative God has creatively made us to be beautiful and unique. And so here's what I do. Maybe it'll help you too. Because I'd be the first one in here to stand up and say, I've got my own biases. When I'm in a situation and I feel one of those biases start creeping up into my mind, I visualize myself reaching out and grabbing it, taking hold of it and making it captive, making it obedient to Christ, nailing it to the cross with him, as Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. And I counter that sinful thought with the gospel and I remind myself of three important truths. Number one, that person is made in God's image and is dearly loved by him just like me. Number two, this is someone that Jesus loves and died for just like me. And number three, this is someone that I might get to spend eternity with because heaven will be full of people who are not just like me. 
people from every tribe, every language, every nation, all ransomed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. There are a thousand different ways that we are different. May we honor those differences instead of allowing them to divide us, even celebrate them. May we elevate the one thing that we have in common, which happens to be the most important thing. You and I and everyone we meet, we have God's image firmly pressed on us and we are dearly loved by him. Paul challenged the Athenian superiority complex by teaching them that we are all made from the same stuff. And so may we choose compassion over division, love over hate. May we give to others what we hope others will give to us. May our attitude and actions towards others be informed by our faith instead of our fears and reflect the compassionate love of Jesus. And may we see the very image of God in the eyes of everyone that we come in contact with. Let's pray. God, thank you for your creativity and for the beauty that we see all around us. Forgive us, Father, when we allow that beauty to cause division and divide, and we allow those divisions and that divide to create biases in us that we act upon. Father, we've all been there. We all carry them. Help us to hold them captive, making them obedient to Christ and influenced by the gospel. Lord, I pray that as a church, we, we will be a place where everyone, everyone, regardless of race, nationality, gender, everyone will feel like this is a place where they can belong because God, in your kingdom, we all are welcomed. We're all invited. Lord, may Sherwood Oaks be a glimpse of what heaven will look like. Lord, thank you that though you made us from one blood and we are the same in many ways, we are also unique and we are different. But Lord, there is one other thing that we all share in common and it's the need for the blood of Jesus to save us. And that Lord, when you went to the cross, you did not discriminate upon who could be saved when they put their faith in you you invited all to come. And so Lord, if there's someone here today that, that needs to take that step, give them the courage to do so. And may we respond to you, Lord, now in a way that is pleasing and helps us grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.